This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Eustachian tubes and tonsils. They get taken for granted until they cause problems. We've all seen patients with eustachian tube dysfunction, and it's very likely that we've experienced it ourselves at some point. It's a common cause of decreased hearing, earfulness, and occasionally balance problems. The tonsils are the immune system's first line of defense against bacteria and viruses that enter our oropharynx, and this makes them particularly vulnerable to infection. As the tonsils' immune function declines after puberty, we see a reduced frequency of tonsillitis in adults. Recurrent tonsillitis is common in children, and tonsillectomy is effective at significantly reducing the number and severity of these episodes. And in the past, about 90% of tonsillectomies in children were done for recurrent infection, but that's no longer true today. Recurrent infection is now an indication for only about 20% of the tonsillectomies performed, and we'll find out what's the number one reason from our guest today as we discuss eustachian tubes and tonsils with a physician who does not take them for granted. We'll speak with Dr. Laura Ovidas, an otolaryngologist at the Mayo Clinic. Laura, welcome. Good morning. You're in the pediatric practice. What makes up your practice? What do you see most in kids regarding eustachian tubes and tonsils? Oh, certainly recurrent otitis media is a big one. And in order to really document that they're having a problem, because I think sometimes ears are hard to look at. We always get an audiogram. It gives us good objective evidence as well as the subjective evidence that people are seeing in clinic just on exam. And that tells us whether there's hearing loss or whether there's fluid because their eardrums aren't moving well, which helps make the judgment of whether ear tubes are appropriate. And with tonsils, it's, it's all about sleep disordered breathing. I probably see at least one or two kids a day that are referred just for that problem. And are they referred because of the breathing issue or because of recurrent tonsillitis or, or both? It's mostly the breathing issue. The, the criteria for tonsillectomy for infection is pretty strict. The expectation is that you would be having seven documented infections in a year or five a year for two years in a row or three for three years in a row. So that, that's pretty hard to meet. So we don't do a ton for infection. Well, I think the most common situation where we're aware of our eustachian tube is pretty much every time we fly. Talk to us about the eustachian tube. What's its purpose and what can go wrong with it? Well, as you realize from when you are flying, its purpose is primarily to equalize the middle ear pressure. So the eustachian tube is a tube that is connects the nasopharynx back of the nose to the middle ear space. It can open and close. It actually has muscles in it that allow you to clear the middle ear space of either negative pressure, fluid, things like that. So what goes wrong? What causes eustachian tube dysfunction? That's a good question because I'm not sure we're 100% know that. There are some theories that in children, it has to do with the size of the head the growth of the head and the angle of the eustachian tube. In adults, we often don't know why they have more difficulty with popping their ears, as you would say. Uh, people have tried things like steroid nasal sprays. There's even been some attempt at opening the eustachian tube from the nasopharynx, but none of those things have been super successful. 
So the normal position for this tube is to be closed and then it opens as needed. Is that correct? Like when you swallow. Right. Okay. So patients are commonly coming in to see us as primary care providers, and it's pretty easy to make the diagnosis of eustachian tube dysfunction in most of them. On physical exam, sometimes I've noticed kind of a yellowish color of their tympanic membrane. Is that accurate? Is that the fluid behind the uh, tympanic membrane that I'm seeing? Absolutely. Usually unaffected fluid is kind of an amber colored liquid that sits behind the eardrum. And that's what you're seeing. Okay. Well, let's talk about what can go wrong. What can, are there complications of eustachian tube dysfunction? I know it clears up in most people by itself. It does. Are there things that can go wrong that uh, would require your intervention? Certainly if it's longstanding and you can get adhesion of the eardrum to the ossicles can cause erosion. That's uncommon, but it is does happen in rare cases where if the fluid sits there long enough and there's enough negative pressure, you can have more problems with middle ear dysfunction. Does it differ in terms of whether you're an adult or a child? Well, I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist, so I see it much more commonly in children. But I would say there is a little bit of a red flag there. In an adult, a unilateral serosotitis can be an indicator of uh, malignancy or some other process going on in the nasopharynx. So those need to be looked at mm-hmm. and rule out any you know, more serious problem. Can this fluid get infected? Definitely. We see that all the time in kids, and that's your typical otitis media, which causes so it, fever discomfort. So is that the reason why you have some kids who are just getting one ear infection after another? And like our kids, I don't think they had an ear infection their entire life, but their friends would often be uh, running into the physician because they had another ear infection. Does that start from eustachian tube dysfunction in them? That is the assumption, yes. So in children, when this does not seem to be resolving quickly, what's the next step? Well, that's when we start talking about placing pressure equalization tubes or ear tubes. How often do you have to do that? Well, I'll tell you, COVID's made it a little bit less common, I think, because everybody's wearing their masks and a lot of them not going to school. But certainly we do it frequently. It's pro- they're probably the most common operation in children in the United States. Hmm. Okay. Now, do you see this more in kids that have uh, like allergies, hay fever, things like that as a cause for the eustachian tube to be uh, obstructed? Absolutely. Because it also can cause adenoid hypertrophy and the adenoid sits right by the opening of the eustachian tube, which okay. also can cause eustachian tube dysfunction and lead to the fluid and the infections. Mm-hmm. I know when I'm uh, supervising residents and they've often never seen an ear tube and they come running out of the room and say there's something bizarre in this patient's ear, it's obviously an ear tube. How long do those stay in? Do they just come out on their own? The vast majority of time they come out on their own. They work their way out as the eardrum heals. It pushes the tube out and either nobody sees it or it'll be noticed in the ear canal. I always tell patients, and some of this is dependent on the type of tube you're putting in. There are some longer lasting tubes, but the standard ones usually last somewhere between eight and 18 months. And the uh, tympanic membrane hole just seals up on its own? Correct. That's the vast, vast majority of the time. Occasionally, a tube will come out and leave a perforation. Now, given time, those still often close on their own. But again, in a very small percentage, there's other operations that need to be done to close that hole. Okay. Now, this is a question I've often wondered about. With kids with ear tubes, can they safely swim? 
I think when I started practice, everybody was wearing earplugs when they were swimming, but they've since come to realize that the surface tension on the top of that tube is such that it's very difficult to get water to go back into the middle ear space. So the general recommendation from our academy now is that you do not use water protection. Yeah, what if they wanted to go diving, you know, where the pressure is greater? Yeah, then I think it would probably be uncomfortable for them if yeah. they didn't wear some kind of ear protection. But those are unusual circumstances. We've also seen problems with water skiing and tubing sure. and those other more, you know, where the water is very aggressive. As yeah. they All right. Well, let's, let's turn now to uh, tonsils. So what's the relationship between a sore throat and tonsillitis? Well, to be honest, the vast majority of sore throats are actually probably more a pharyngitis. I mean, that's what we tell people who get a lot of sore throats and think they need their tonsils out. One, the vast majority are viral. So taking tonsils out it doesn't necessarily help with viral infections. And two, even with your tonsils out, you can still get infection, including strep, although the incidence is much lower after tonsillectomy. I know we often culture for strep, but it's not so much to treat the actual strep infection, but to treat its sequela. How many pharyngitis episodes would you say are viral versus bacterial? I'd say it's probably 90 versus 10. 90% viral. Okay. So patients who come in uh, expecting an antibiotic, it's uh, unlikely that one's going to really help them. Correct. And that's part of the reason we advise people to go ahead and do that strep culture, because even if we're trying to establish a pattern or justify a surgical procedure, it's best to have the evidence. And if they're not getting cultured, we're not getting that evidence. Okay. So let's say a patient comes in with a sore throat, we see enlarged erythematous tonsils. What should a primary care provider do next? Well, that's probably a good time to actually get a strep culture and make sure that there isn't something that could be treated or needs to be treated because of the sequela. But again, there's some pretty good studies out there that both in adults and in children, what you look at is not the best way to determine how you would treat. You almost need some kind of objective evidence because it's very difficult to tell the difference between a viral pharyngitis or tonsillitis versus a bacterial in many cases. And when should we suspect a peritonsillar abscess? The big signs of that are trismus or inability to open your mouth and a deviated uvula is the other thing. If there's a peritonsillar abscess, pushes the tonsil more medial and will cause the uvula to deviate. Now I've seen a few patients whose tonsils seem to be so large they actually meet in the center. Is that of concern? Do we need to worry about them? Not if they aren't having any symptoms. We'll see that where you'll examine a kid for another reason and they'll have four plus touching tonsils and you say, are you snoring? Are you having trouble sleeping? Do you have any eating difficulty? And the answers are all, no, we don't do a thing. Okay. Now I know that the procedure tonsillectomy has, the frequency has declined significantly over the past 25, 30 years. Why is that? Why are we doing fewer tonsillectomies now than in the past? I'm not sure that's the case. We're certainly doing much fewer tonsillectomies for infection, but sleep disorder breathing is a whole nother realm where we're probably seeing more of that because it's being detected more. So that's really replaced the number one reason for uh, doing a tonsillectomy then, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I don't have a, a pediatric practice and I see a fair amount of uh, obstructive sleep apnea in adults. I was not aware that it's that common in children, but you do see it. Yes, that's definitely the number one reason we take out tonsils now. And I, I think 
at Mayo, I think we took out about 400 plus tonsils last year in children. Does that tend to solve their problem of sleep apnea? About 90% of the time. Interesting. Especially in children that don't have other comorbidities, mm -hmm. like trisomy 21 or craniofacial abnormalities or obesity. But your run-of-the-mill normal child with big tonsils who snores and stops breathing and tonsillectomy is curative. So you might suspect that in a child who's sleepy frequently, falls asleep in class, maybe has a recurrent pharyngitis, recurrent tonsillitis. That's the reason to maybe uh, ask an ENT physician to see them. Correct. Absolutely. Okay. And sometimes, especially in children with comorbidities or young children, say under the age of two, we usually suggest they first see sleep medicine and then determine whether there's a reason to come see us. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I've seen a few patients that have had presumably recurrent tonsillitis in the past, and they continue to have enlarged tonsils as an adult. Anything need to be done with them? Now, certainly in the adult practice is much less in terms of the number of people requiring tonsillectomy, but that certainly is one of the options for adults with sleep apnea and large tonsils is one of the choices would be to take out their tonsils, often in combination with other procedures. It doesn't work anywhere near as well in adults as it does in kids. Finally, what are tonsil stones? You have crypts in your tonsils, and certain people have bigger and deeper crypts in their tonsils, and food gets stuck in there. And because it gets stuck in there, it causes an inflammatory reaction. You get a bunch of white blood cells, and you get this stinky, chalky thing that often will then be extruded from the tonsil, either manually or by itself. They're usually pretty foul-smelling. I've seen patients go to extreme lengths to get these tonsil stones out. Uh, is that necessary? Well, I think it is if it's irritating. I mean, sometimes they're irritating and also can cause some halitosis. And is there a preferred method to remove these tonsil stones by the patient? Well, it depends on how bad their gag reflex is, for one. Um, sometimes you can push with just with your finger and get them out. Water pick works on occasion, and sometimes just really good gargling with Listerine or something like that, that or salt water that will sometimes help get them out. Sometimes the cure is tonsillectomy. Okay. Finally, let's summarize. Can you give maybe two or three key points regarding eustachian tubes and tonsils to kind of summarize our discussion? Well, I would certainly say that ear infections are probably the most common thing that's treated and that we see from a referral basis. We don't really have a good sense of why certain children get so many and certain children don't. The thought being eustachian tube dysfunction, but we don't really have a reason why this child is so much different than th this one. In terms of tonsils, I think the big thing is to listen. If you have concerns about your kid's breathing, go in there, listen. Um, nowadays, we all have phones you can record. That's great information to bring to your primary care provider and can help them determine whether referral is appropriate. Well, we've been discussing eustachian tubes and tonsils and how they can cause problems with Dr. Laura Urvides, an otolaryngologist from the Mayo Clinic. Laura, thanks for sharing your expertise with us today. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe, stay healthy, and see you next week.